We are only in Mark chapter 3. Only three chapters in, and we have seen Jesus baptized in the Jordan and God's Spirit descend as a dove, pronouncing him as his beloved son. We have seen Jesus tempted in the wilderness, heal a leprous man, heal many people, often on the Sabbath. We've seen him followed by large crowds who desire healing and often turning away to quiet places, desiring to teach them, but knowing their need for healing. We have seen countless crowds, and it didn't take long for all these crowds following Jesus, receiving his healing, hearing his teaching, to draw some negative attention his way. At the beginning of this chapter, after Jesus heals in the synagogue on the Sabbath, the Pharisees and the supporters of Herod and Rome, who are usually natural enemies, have now started to plot how they might kill Jesus. Chapter 3, and there's already violence afoot, plans for his death. But the crowds continue to follow Jesus. Jesus appoints the 12 disciples to share in his ministry of teaching and casting out demons. And then some accusations come Jesus' way. Mark, he has this way of putting a story inside another story connecting them, helping us to see one in the light of the other, and together helping us see something totally new and different about who Jesus really is. You'll notice this happening a lot, and I think it happens again just in two weeks' time. And this is what we see happening in today's reading. There are two different stories here. There's one story about Jesus and his family, and another story about Jesus and the teachers of the law. Jesus' family story suddenly drops off for us to hear about the other accusations Jesus is facing and his response to them. And then we just pick back up with Jesus' family again as Jesus addresses how he understands what family is. Let's walk through these stories, not one story at a time, but just the way that Mark compiles them for us and see if we can get that better picture that Mark means for us to have, that picture of how Mark understood Jesus to be and who we can see um, how Jesus is in our lives and the world today as well. Once again, a crowd gathers, and Jesus and his disciples are prevented from even eating because of this crowd. Jesus' family hears about this, and they're concerned. Perhaps, like any good family, they're concerned that Jesus isn't taking as good care of himself as he ought to be. I'm sure many of us remember phone calls with our family or friends, those who care about us most, where somebody says on the call, you know, you need to eat, right? Good families want us to eat. Jesus needs to eat too, and this may be the most charitable way that we can interpret his family's concern. Because more than likely, it isn't just that he's not eating. Rather, their concern is not about Jesus' health or the success of his ministry. It is more likely for their family's reputation. These are small villages that Jesus is teaching and ministering within. And all of them are within the small country region of Galilee. Some of us know what small town life is really like. It's not a faceless metropolis where you can go a few blocks away and become completely anonymous again. People know who Jesus is. They don't just know about him, they know about his family, his aunts and uncles and all his cousins, who they married and what they celebrate. They know Jesus. 
They know his family. They know the stories that matter to them. They know the secrets that they try in vain to keep. The people that Jesus is gathering in these crowds are sort of distant relations, all of them likely connected in some way or another to his family. And if not, they really certainly know people who are. And Jesus is drawing unfavorable attention to them all. The whole family is being cast in a certain light because of Jesus. Jesus is causing trouble at best, being taken as a blasphemer at worst. He's out of his mind, his family concludes. Why else could Jesus behave the way that he does? So they come to take charge of him. In this cultural context, one's family almost always had charge of you. But the wording here is stronger than just giving him a talking to, stronger than even just taking him home. This is a suggestion that they have come to overpower Jesus. They intended to seize him. They were going to stop this behavior and drag him back to Nazareth if they had to. The family's honor is at stake after all. A number of biblical commentators look at this passage and they point back to a passage in Zechariah 13 where the prophet Zechariah prophesies that even a prophet's parents would harm them. And when a person asks, what are these wounds on your body? The prophet will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. There was an expectation that prophets from God would be rejected even by their closest friends and family that the will of God is in fact so alarming to our broken and disoriented human sensibilities that those nearest to it can sometimes react in surprising ways. Many of us who follow Jesus have known such hardship, injury, and rejection. There are some in our church community who have been rejected by their family because of their decision to follow Jesus. There are others whose relationships with their parents have become strained as a result of that decision, and still others whose families say they are Christian, but who puzzle at the actions of love, justice, and mercy, which we participate in because of the will of God working in our lives. Families that are convinced, perhaps, that we mismanage our finances, waste our gifts and talents, idle away our time in work that is, in fact, the very work of Christ. If any of that is your story at all, Mark makes plain that you are in good company, that Jesus experienced this kind of trouble as well. But it's not only Jesus' family that have concerns about his behavior. He's attracted the attention of the religious teachers as well. They come down from Jerusalem, down from the big city to the country place to hear what Jesus is saying. But they haven't just been saying that he's out of his mind. They've been saying something different. These teachers have been saying he is possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Jesus is quick to put this suggestion completely to bed. It doesn't make any sense, he says. How can Satan drive himself out? He'd have to be out of his own mind to do that. Warring factions in Satan's kingdom? If that's the case, then he's already undone. There's no more work to do. No, Satan can only be undone as a strong man can have his house plundered. First, he must be tied up. 
Jesus is doing the work of binding up the works of Satan. Jesus has come into this world to plunder the one who is called the prince of this world and to announce the kingdom of God. Here we can see the first portion of why Mark may have embedded this story in that other story. Why Mark may have taken this story about the teachers and put it in the center of the story about Jesus' family. It is not only that they both misunderstand Jesus and his, and his ministry. It's not only that they're both saying things about who he is. But it's also that his family has come to restrain him. But he is the strong man who cannot be restrained. His family has come to control him, but he is the one who is in control of the cosmos and cannot himself be controlled. Jesus has come to bind up the works of Satan, and his work will not be constrained, not by his family, not by the teachers of the law, not by Satan, not by death itself. And if all of this is true, we must realize that certainly neither can we constrain him. We cannot constrain Jesus' continuing work in our world and in our lives. Try as we might to contain Jesus, to direct the work of the Spirit, to bend the will of the Father. Jesus' ministry will continue in the ways in which it was intended to. We cannot control him. We cannot even fathom seizing him from his ongoing works of mercy and justice, even when they seem to be entirely opposed to the ways of this world. Because undoing the darkness of this world is the very purpose of his work. It's not going to make sense in the frameworks that we have. He's come to undo the darkness of this world such that the new creation can come forth. I was recently reminded of a scene in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe in which Susan learns that Aslan is not a man, but a lion. And she asks, is he quite safe? To which Mr. Beaver responds, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Lewis intended for Aslan to be the incarnation of Christ in the world of Narnia. And what Mr. Beaver says of Aslan is certainly true of Christ as well. He is not safe. Not safe in the ways that we imagine safety. Doors locked and curtains closed, making every effort to hide ourselves from the world and keep the world away from us. Christ is not safe will not shy away from his opponents for the sake of his family's reputation, will not send away the crowds to avoid the watchful eye of the teachers of the law, will not succumb to temptation to avoid the suffering of the cross, and will not leave us alone, unchallenged and unchanged for the sake of our own comfort. He is not safe. But in all this we see and we know that he is oh so good. In the response of Jesus' family and the teachers of the law, in these accusations about who Jesus is, that he's out of his mind or that he's demon-possessed, we're actually presented with two possible responses to the ministry of Jesus. Those who've taken the Alpha course 
before may be familiar with the question of Lewis's trilemma. Lewis's trilemma, simply put, is that in responding to the claims of Jesus in the Bible, if the gospel accounts are an accurate depiction of Jesus at all, then we have to come to one of three conclusions. Either Jesus is a lunatic, he's out of his mind as his family believes here, or we could conclude that he's a liar, that he's evil but he says he's good, that he's demon-possessed as the teachers of the law believe here, or we, conclu- or we can conclude that he is Lord. Mark is making the claim that it is the latter which is true, that it is the Lord of creation itself who comes to overcome the power of Satan in the world, that it is only the Lord who does the will of God who cannot be bound, cannot be undermined, cannot be swayed from his work. While his family were only saying that he was out of his mind, the teachers of the law were saying that he was demon-possessed. They were saying. The tense of this verb indicates that it's ongoing. It's incomplete. It's an ongoing action. They said and they continue to say that he is demon-possessed. And so Jesus says those words to them which caught so many of our attention this week as we read chapter 3 together and in the reading that we just heard. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. And this is jarring to us because we've been told that God will forgive any and all of our sins. So, What's this new information, we might ask? But Jesus is telling the teachers of the law only what they already believed. It was held by many interpreters of the Jewish law that God pardons all sin but blasphemy. And eventually, it will be the sin of blasphemy which the high priest accuses Jesus of to justify his execution. In saying that they are blaspheming against the Holy Spirit, Jesus makes clear that he works according to the will of no demon, not even according to his own will, but only by the power of the Spirit. The teachers of the law are denying the power and the greatness of God's Spirit at work in Christ's life. They, who are the teachers of Israel, the people of God, the very ones who should be able to spot the work of God most readily, they will not see it. To to God, the psalmist says, even darkness is as light to you. But these teachers of the law, they're sort of the opposite. They see light and they recognize it as darkness. They see goodness and they name it as evil. And they do so persistently, blind now to what they've spent their whole lives preparing to see, unmoving despite the moving nature of the work which is done in their presence. Their hearts are hard both to men and to God, and they reject God in rejecting the work of God, which is seen perfectly in the work of Jesus. They know better, but their ambition or their rigidity will not allow them to see the truth which is before them. And they mislabel Jesus' work. They mislead those who they teach. It seems true what James says, we who teach will be judged more strictly. Jesus does not give such a warning to his family who believes that he's out of his mind. 
And I do not believe that Jesus gives such a warning today to those who doubt, or to those who are skeptical of his claims, who may answer that trilemma with liar or lunatic alike based on their experiences. Jesus does not give this warning today to those whose faith has been stunted by the evils they have witnessed in the history of the church or by the harms they have perhaps experienced at the hands of those who bear Christ's name. These teachers of the law were the ones who were best prepared to witness God at work, who saw that work in its purest form done by Jesus in front of their very eyes. And in the hardness of their hearts, they do not only doubt, they oppose it. And this is the sin which Jesus warns them against. Then Mark returns to the original story. Jesus' family has come in vain to seize one who cannot be overpowered. And the crowd tells him that they have arrived, but Jesus shifts the paradigm. His brother, sister, and mother are not the ones with whom he shares his blood, but they are the ones with whom he shares the work of God. Even as he proclaims this new kingdom, he also proclaims a new family of which his mother and brothers will be a part. James, the brother of Jesus we know, contributes a book to our Bible. They will be a part of this new family. But as long as they're seizing him, as long as they're trying to undermine his work, they're not. Only as they participate in that work are they mother and sister and brother. Jesus' allegiance is primarily to the work of God. And then it's to the community of those who God forms who do that same work. Jesus calls many to follow him and to leave father and mother. And in this passage, we see that what he calls us to do, he is willing to do as well. Should even the call of his mother divert him from God's work, he will not answer it. Should the strength of his brothers oppose him and try to bind him, he will not be bound. He is committed to the work which his heavenly Father has set before him, empowered by the movement of the Holy Spirit, and he will not be turned away from these things because he loves us. He will not be turned away from even those who accuse him because he desires their flourishing, because he cares for our world. It is good for his family that he will not be bound by them. And it is good for our world that the church will not allow itself to be fettered by the politics that can unite even Pharisee and Herodian, liberal and conservative, against the cause of Christ our Lord. We are invited to be the family of Christ. You are invited to be brother and sister and mother of the one who brings light and life to the world by participating in that work even if it may seem like you're out of your mind, even if those who should know better may oppose you. Because in Mark's gospel, we see that we are in good company. And in Matthew's gospel, Jesus offers this blessing to those who will know suffering for God's work. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Dear friends, 
brothers and sisters of Christ, laborers of God's vineyard, let us rejoice and be glad that we join in the work of the one who will not be bound, the one who is not safe but is good, the one who comes to reconcile and heal and restore, and who turns even darkness into light. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Every week we leave time for you to reflect on what the Spirit may have been saying to you and to our church through these words and through the Scripture. And so for you in the sanctuary, maybe some quiet time of prayer or taking some notes on your phone to reflect on later. For you at home, you might even pause the video for an extended conversation. Um, you can chat, you can pray together, um, journal. Here are the questions. The first question is, what is an aspect of God's will in your life that might draw negative attention from your friends and your family? The second is, how quick are you to see the work of God, bringing light and life into the world, and to name it as such, to see it for what it is? And maybe if you're not instantly able to do that, what prevents you from seeing God's work clearly? And then a third question, an invitation to pray. Pray that you and our church might be true brothers and sisters of Christ, eager to submit to the will of God, quick to join in the Spirit's work. So we'll leave a couple of moments for you to pray, to reflect, to discern the Spirit's movement.